Hello, this is Mia Ferraletto. Um, today is May 13th, it's a Thursday, and rather than have a guest on the New Observations podcast, I would like to share with all of you um, the monumental experience that I've recently gone through in terms of having my aortic valve replaced through open heart surgery. Um, my surgery was on April 26th. I was born with a heart murmur, which I have thought about quite a bit over recent years. Um, curious to know exactly what I brought in with me, uh, what heartache I brought in with me to manifest in such a uh, pronounced way from a past life. And since 2013, I have been experiencing AFib, uh, which is when your heart pattern, the beating of your heart rate, um, becomes erratic and uh, causes multiple um, symptoms such as shortness of breath, dizziness, nausea. Um, the past few years, my condition has deteriorated and my doctors and I have been watching it, but um, in the past six months, it's become progress progressively worse. And when I had an echocardiogram in mid-March, um, my condition had deteriorated dramatically and it was clear that I needed surgery ASAP. So it um, did not work out exactly the way I thought it would, uh, hoped it would. Um, I knew that there would be a, a physical challenge and I knew that there would be a spiritual challenge attached to it. Um, I knew uh, or I've known throughout my life that I've carried um, sort of a heart blockage um, which has caused me to hold back in particular ways, but um, also provided a framework um, for my spiritual development because I knew coming in this, this lifetime that I had made the decision to come in specifically and that I had particular work uh, to do. Um, so that's proven to, to be very much the case. Uh, the week before my surgery, I had to go up to the hospital two and a half hours from my home to have a cardiac catheterization where they went in to view my heart and see exactly what was going on in terms of all the um, arteries and um, everything else. So <clears throat> when I met with the surgeon the week before, we had discussed the possibility of putting in a mechanical valve, which I wasn't crazy about, but I also did not want to commit to a hardcore blood thinner like Coumadin for the rest of my life. 
And after having had the cardiac catheterization test to learn that I did not need any stents put in to open up uh, valves, arteries that were closing in, or bypass surgery in any way, I knew how healthy my heart actually was and that the problem was, in fact, this, this valve, this aortic valve, which needed to be replaced. So I decided to go with a biological valve instead of a mechanical one and to stay with the blood thinners that I've been on for the past several years, which is um, Eliquis, which um, you do have the option of getting off of it. Uh, which is an option that I wanted to be able to keep open. So <clears throat> the day of surgery arrives, April 26, uh, a super full moon, no coincidence. I get to the hospital. I have all the pre-surgery tests and speak to an anesthesiologist about, the, about putting two ports into my back for additional pain medication, which was not anything I was really interested in doing. Um, having had several surgeries, you know, common run-of-the-mill surgeries, and having had a complete hysterectomy uh, 13 years ago, and having gone through it with standard pain medication, the idea of signing up for, you know, heavy-duty drugs was not of any interest to me. Um, my father was a doctor. I grew up in a medical house. My first job out of graduate school was at NYU Medical Center. I was the administrator for the third-year clerkship medical student teaching in psychiatry and the first-year behavioral science course in the late 1970s. This was the very beginning of medical school teaching, focusing on the mind-body-spirit connection. And uh, at that time, I began to take my pre-med courses, even though I already had a graduate degree, to go back to school because I wanted to become a psychiatrist. Um, I worked, I interned not for a long time, but in the emergency room at St. Luke's Hospital in New York City. And I attended psychiatric grand rounds every week. Um, Mark David Chapman was right down the hall from my office when he killed John Lennon on the forensic ward. My hospital was in the old Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. And let me tell you, that was a trip. But I um, was... <laughs> made aware of things like shamanic healing back in the late 1970s because the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Medical Center was exploring issues like this. Um, so I'm ready for my surgery. I was taken in at one in the afternoon and <clears throat> I awoke at nine o'clock the following morning, Tuesday morning. Uh, and was told that after my surgery, I was already on the gurney to go back to the recovery room. My blood pressure crashed into the 20s and uh, was brought up to 300 in order to stabilize me. I woke up in the um, recovery room and once before I developed vertigo uh, after surgery, from being brought out of anesthesia too quickly. 
And I warned the, the nurse to not raise me up too quickly because I did not want to experience vertigo. Nevertheless, he didn't listen to me and kept raising me, raising me, raising me. Uh, the nausea began immediately, the retching. And uh, let me tell you, when you start retching after open heart surgery, the pain is extreme. I vomited and the vertigo began. I had vertigo for almost two full days. The next day was Wednesday. I woke up with an asthmatic wheeze. For several decades, I had very bad asthma um, and weaned myself of it 11 years ago through meditation and relaxation. I'm completely asthma-free and completely asthmatic medication-free. But the wheeze began and persisted, and pneumonia is one of the key issues with open heart surgery, your lungs can fill with fluid very quickly. So I asked for asthma medication. It took a day and a half for me to get it. In the meantime, multiple nurses are giving me multiple pain meds on no food. On Tuesday, I had a half of a chicken salad sandwich. On Wednesday, I ate nothing. On Thursday, I had one of those little mini bagels with cream cheese and a fruit cup. Um, so I'm getting all this pain medication when I don't drink, smoke, uh, do recreational drugs, and in general have one cup of coffee a day. So needless to say, by Thursday afternoon, I started hallucinating. And because of the work that I've done in consciousness, I was aware of the hallucinations. On um, Thursday afternoon, I was sitting on, on my bed and uh, in my bed, and I saw my computer lying on the bed. I went, had gone through a great deal of deliberation about whether or not to bring my computer to the hospital and decided to leave it at home. So I picked up my cell phone and called my friend and asked him to look for my computer uh, where I left it, and of course it was there. So that provided me with the outside objectivity to know that I was hallucinating. And interestingly enough, the vibration or frequency of my visions was exceptionally high unless they had to do with the hospital. And I knew uh, on all levels that I was not getting proper care at the hospital, that no one was in fact really looking out for me in the way that I needed to be cared for. Um, I um, understood that in order to heal that I needed to be someplace else. And interestingly enough, the day that I went up to the hospital for my cardiac catheterization test, I was driven there by an, an older man in his early 70s, I would say, who's part of a service of drivers that the state here, uh, the state of Vermont has for people who are experiencing medical conditions 
uh, who cannot drive themselves. And because I was going to be partially sedated for the cardiac catheterization, I needed a driver. I could not drive myself there and back. So the morning he picked me up, he was late. He had trouble finding the place. Uh, We were on I-90 heading north, and at the turnoff on 89, when he should have continued to head north, he drove into New Hampshire. And I said, what are you doing? You're going into New Hampshire. We need to be heading north in Vermont. And he said to me twice, he said, your hospital, we have to go past Dartmouth to get to your hospital. Your hospital is past Dartmouth. So because <clears throat> I was so preoccupied with everything going on with my surgery and all that I had to accomplish in such a short period of time, which was made even harder with um, the multiple COVID tests I had to take before each procedure and then be sequestered. So just doing basic errands became an enormous challenge. I didn't really focus on it, but in fact, it was, um, his words were a very clear message from spirit that my hospital was east of Dartmouth. Um, The hallucination, I'm in the middle of all the hallucinations and checking them and when I would see things in front of me that I knew were not real, I would poke my finger into them and they would reverberate out just like uh, The Matrix or, you know, any, any of these movies that has that special effect where you see, you know, an image reverberate out, out and beyond. So <clears throat> I consistently tested myself. Um, Was it perfect? No, I'm sure it wasn't. Um, But obviously, this is something that the hospital uh, deals with on a regular basis, given the intensity of the pain meds that they're freely giving out. And there's an opioid crisis in Vermont, and I know why. Uh, I've started to check into other people who have had similar experiences as mine. So by Thursday afternoon, I knew I didn't want to stay there, and I told my surgeon that I wanted to transfer to the hospital, um, the local hospital in Rutland, where my cardiologist works out of, because I didn't feel that um, I didn't feel that I was receiving the type of care that I needed. And she said that, you know, that could be arranged. So then Friday morning I woke up and uh, canceled all pain medication, told them that I was only taking Tylenol for any pain. Um, And they had us on these massive um, amounts of Metamucil and Colace together rather than um, risk being clogged up, which caused all kinds of um, reactions, horrible diarrhea, um, uncontrollable for several days. I had asked for a clean gown, which I never received. It seemed like all of my needs were being ignored, and anything I asked for took days to... um, 
to be addressed. So Friday afternoon, I realized that it was time for me to leave, that I was not getting what I needed there. And um, early evening, I put my clothes on. Um, I had multiple IV lines and um, electrical devices coming out of me. I had a uh, wound vac uh, hooked into my, my chest. Keep in mind that they had to crack my lungs open in order to perform surgery on my heart. So not only do I have an incision um, from my my um, from <laughs> from my neck um, all the way down to to my abdomen, basically, um, but that my entire rib cage had been broken. So the pain meds that I had been on were still in effect at that, at that point, but I had been going in and out of atrial fibrillation all week. I had an asthmatic wheeze and I um, was weak. I was, you know, very weak in fact. So I left my room with my things and I told them that I was leaving I was surrounded by 12 or 14 people, including a psychiatrist, and my surgeon uh, was there ultimately, Um, all of the nurses, the residency staff, and a couple of security guards who in no way were capable of dealing with someone who was a recent open-heart surgery patient, yet alone someone who might be having a psychiatric episode. Um, And I simply told them, do not touch me. I am leaving. I am not getting the care that I need here. So um, that proceeded for quite a long time. Um, I refused to go back to my room. I was not going backwards for anything in the world. I was only moving forward. And there was a room which, in fact, was used as kind of an office, and they moved a hospital bed in there uh, for me. Um, But I slept on a, I slept a few hours on a very low-level couch in that room. And a woman who was doing input on a computer was extremely kind to me and stayed with me she worked at night, so she was busy working in the same room as me, and uh, one of the residents, and she checked up on me. Um, the doctor um, who told me I could not leave with all of these gizmos attached to me refused to take them out, so I took them out myself except for the wound back. And, you know, I'm literally standing in the hallway taking my lines out of my body after open heart surgery. So I had to speak to a staff psychiatrist to prove that I was not of harm to myself or to anyone else. And I told him about my experience and I told him that basically I thought the hospital did not want me to leave because of financial reasons. 
And he essentially agreed with that. We spoke a second time um, and he, you know, told me that he had enjoyed talking to me essentially and, you know, wished me well. It was a, a nice second conversation. It was a nice first conversation. But the point is, this all could have gone a very different way, um, aside from the fact that I could have been physically harmed. Um, I could have been psychologically harmed as well uh, or institutionalized. You see the level of possibility at these crossroad moments where life could go either way. And you realize, in fact, just how serious they actually are. They're enormously serious. So sleeping um, on this low sofa in, in this room at, at the hospital o- overnight, dozing, uh, at one point I woke up and I had the vision that I was in um, this beautiful, simple rectangular temple, like a mastaba-shaped temple, which if you don't know what that is, look it up. It's a, it's a rectangular uh, building, but, but small and intimate and kind of um, early Roman, early Greek, very simple. Um, and all of the walls and all of the ceiling were covered in drawings that I had actually done in reality in my 20s. And some were those that I had not made myself, but they were all in my handwriting. And that was what they were when I made them in my 20s. They were my handwriting that had actually drawings of people and things mixed into the handwriting. And they were all done in simple graphite, material on Arsh cover buff paper, which is a beautiful tan, uh, soft tan printmaking paper, 22 by 30 in shape. They were all in size. They were all vertical. And each was framed in a very simple wood carved frame that had a gold finish, but subtly gold, very much like recessed niches um, in classic architecture. Um, could have been like Brunelleschi design, but very simple in a mastaba shape. And I was told that this was the Mia temple and that all of these drawings represented my history throughout my lifetime, as well as the histories of all the other people that I had influenced by my actions throughout throughout my time, um, which was extraordinary. It was extraordinarily beautiful. The, the pervasive overall color was gold. It was all of the highest elevation. And it was just an enormous, enormous gift to me. And all of the elementals, all of the kingdoms, were coming out, the Divic, the, the animal kingdom, the, the mineral kingdom. Um, they all came out. They were all jeweled. They were all of 
this incredibly high vibration, um, just dancing and happy. And um, I, I can't even tell you what an extraordinary experience that was for me because I know I consciously am aware when they're around me, but to be able to see them in that way, to have access to seeing them and their joy and their light and their love and their happiness and all that they brought to me and all that they surround me with, I, I can't even begin to describe what an amazing experience it was. So I fell asleep, and when I woke up, the entire floor of the room was filled with dozens and dozens of angelic beings lying on the floor sleeping with me, there with me, surrounding me, helping me, supporting me. Uh, Again, they were all this extraordinarily beautiful golden light and um, just exuding peace and calm. Um, The next morning, my friend Tom came and picked me up uh, at the hospital. They finally signed the release form. I uh, refused to stay upstairs uh, in the cardiac department. I went down to the lobby and sat there waiting for him to arrive almost at noontime, he had a, an almost three-hour drive to come and get me. And I slept in the car home and immediately came upstairs and slept for 10 hours and woke up about 10.30 and knocked on his door and asked him to call an ambulance because the um, wound vac battery was dead and beep, the the back was beeping and I was in AFib and having a severe asthmatic wheeze. So I knew I needed to be in the hospital. I, the ambulance came, we went to the local Springfield hospital, 20 bed little hospital in the next town. And, um, the emergency room doctor, the wonderful emergency room doctor, uh, did everything to provide me with the best quality care that he possibly could. He listened to everything I said. He, he believed me. He agreed with me. Um, we called my cardiologist who was off for the weekend and his colleague who was covering for him uh, told the doctor to send me back to, to the hospital where my surgery had happened and that he was sure my cardiologist would say the same thing. And I said, it's counterintuitive for me to go to a place where I know I cannot heal. So Dartmouth Hospital was called, and they said I should also go back to the hospital where my surgery happened. And I said to the emergency room doctor in Springfield, when did it happen that doctors became lawyers. When did it happen, as with lawyers, that if someone is suing a lawyer, no other lawyer will get involved uh, because obviously they don't want to be sued ultimately? And I said, when did doctors, you know, give up on, on doing the right thing? You know, my father was a GP. He started medical school at 30 and I was born his first year there. And 
my siblings and I grew up knowing that for my father, his patients came first. We were always second. And I watched the level of uh, commitment that he gave each and every person under his care. Um, And if people could not afford to pay, they made him sweaters. We had more hand-knit sweaters and homemade raviolis and afghans uh, than anybody. And that was just, that was just the way it was. So that, that was my ideal. That was the standard, um, to which I held the medical profession. And interestingly enough, uh, the emergency room doctor in Springfield felt the same way because either his father or grandfather had been a doctor and it had been exactly the same thing. So, The emergency room doctor said to me, I am here until 7. This was, you know, late in the morning. I'm here till 7 tonight. If I have to spend the entire day making phone calls to find a hospital to take you, um, that's what I'll do. And the next phone call was to bring a women's hospital in Boston. The ambulance came and got me and drove me to Boston and um, I arrived around eight o'clock at night. Um, They took the uh, wound vac out of uh, my body and did some other tests, um, examined me uh, and assigned me to a bed. And the next morning I woke up And from that moment on, well, actually from the moment I entered the hospital, um, they were aware of absolutely every aspect of my condition and what I needed to get better. Um, I had fluid in my lung. Uh, Springfield had thought I might have had a heart attack from the surgery. And there was a nick in my lung from the surgery. Um, but, um, because of the extraordinary care I received, my lungs cleared up. Both hospitals provided me with nebulizers and asthmatic treatment, the same treatment that I should have received immediately, uh, at the hospital I had my surgery at. But they, as I said, ignored it for a day and a half. And if any of you have asthma, you know how quickly an asthmatic uh, situation can develop, a serious asthmatic situation can develop. So Boston, just so you know, is east of Dartmouth. So in fact, the man who drove me to my cardiac catheterization was being used by spirit to give me a message that the hospital I needed to be at was in Boston. You can't make this stuff up. You just can't. And interestingly enough, while I was still at the hospital in Vermont, I had three visitors. Um, At one point, there was a white-haired elderly man lying in bed next to me who was dying. That was on Wednesday. That night, I had an Essene sitting in the chair next to me with his back turned to me, 
And I kept telling him, they're not going to let you stay here. You can't stay here. And then later on, there was um, an Indian, not Native American, but from India, extraordinarily tall and thin and kind of distorted looking individual um, standing there. And he had a pile of puppies on the floor. Um, The puppies were not doing well. And ultimately, he was actually hiding in one of the curtains, you know, in hospital rooms, how they use divider curtains to separate patient beds. Um, And I told him unequivocally he had to leave. But when I was being transported out to go home, um, a, a massively tall Rastafarian who looked just like this man um, came into the elevator as I was leaving the elevator. Another interesting synchronicity is the emergency room nurse at Brigham Women's who took care of me when I first got there, had white hair. She was just this extremely um, healthy and and vivacious looking woman, I would say around 60. And um, even though a woman, her name was Andy, and my white dog, um, pure white, was named Andy, also a girl. She was named after Andy Warhol. So I got the message loud and clear that I was in the right place. And again, from that moment on, I, um, I cannot tell you how, number one, how calm and safe I felt because I knew my needs were being met and also how determined I was to learn absolutely everything I could about my situation. I was one of the cases chosen by daily, the cardiac department for daily rounds. So every morning I had um, all the residents in reviewing my case, reviewing the changes from day to day, discussing it all with me. And I had a faculty member from the Harvard Medical School and a first-year Harvard medical student come and examine me and discuss my case with me for about an hour and a half. And we even discussed John Mack and consciousness and um, Native Americans uh, and New Observations magazine. So it was very much like old home week for me uh, after working at NYU Medical Center uh, in the late 1970s. It, It was a great opportunity And I learned so much about so many aspects of my health that will serve me in in tremendous stead as I move forward with this phase of my life, which is, in my opinion, the most important uh, phase of my life. It's the time where I'm doing what I consider to be my most important work. Um, having a biologic valve, um, I was told at the hospital where my surgery was that I needed to take Coumadin for three months following the surgery, even with a biologic valve, whereas with a mechanical valve, it's a lifelong commitment. 
And here we are at Brigham Women's Hospital, and people are not put on Coumadin after biologic valves. They're returned to their whatever uh, blood thinner that they're on. Um, And it just shows you that the body has this extraordinary intelligence to heal itself, um, which I've always known and I, you know, respect and acknowledge in myself and in others. But it's just extraordinary how the medical profession tells you this is the way it is. And this is not necessarily the way it is. We all have to be active patients and take care of ourselves. Um, do not just passively accept what people tell you because um, they don't know. They don't know. Um, 2% of the people who have this surgical procedure die. And the week before my surgery, I had a conversation with the twin brother of a fellow uh, board colleague for the indigenous school that um, is being built in South Dakota. Um, Jamie had shared with me that her twin brother, Jeff, was having the exact same procedure. And I wanted to talk to him about his experience. Um, I'd never spoken to him before, but I felt that his life force was not strong for some reason. That was the impression that I left with when we hung up. And in fact, Jeff Jeff passed away a couple of days before my surgery. Um, And Jamie had juggled or wrestled with whether or not to tell me about it um, beforehand. And she decided not to. But the day after I got home, she um, shared the facts with me. So I, I just want you to think about um, this situation in terms of your own health uh, and potential health, do not ever consider having a serious surgery in a state of 630,000 people. Um, Boston, the city alone, has almost 4.5 million people, and the hospital I was in was affiliate, is affiliated with the best medical centers uh, in New England, Um, and I received extraordinary care and will be going back on Monday there uh, for my follow-up visit. It's the exact same distance as it is to get to the hospital in Vermont, and I will never go back to the hospital in Vermont. Um, But being able to move in and out of these realms of reality consciously regardless of the chemicals that were altering my state of reality and still make the best possible decisions for myself was an enormous milestone for me, but it's also the milestone that I brought to the collective, to the morphogenic field um, as an offering through my surgery and through the work that I've been doing. And I absolutely know that it had tremendous significance in terms of feeding the collective. Um, We are at such 
an important point in our history. I had not had any news uh, for two weeks and to come out and see that Melinda Gates is, is divorcing Bill Gates due to his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, you know, after 25 years and the conflict in Gaza and all the other things that are happening, um, the news on Trump, we are really at a point of transformation um, and, and do not underestimate this. Do not. Um, and again, regarding death, there was a question on the New Observations podcast about all these people dying. These people are going now because it's their destiny to go now. Um, that may seem detached, cold, uh, you know, empty, but death is not random. Um, I have gone through hell and back over the past few weeks. This has been my personal hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell would, would describe it. It's been a shamanic journey for myself, and I offer it up for others. And... Um, just know that you and everyone around you has way more personal authority and input into into your life and the lives around you. That's what that temple was all about. And the unseen world um, is here to help you. I think of Rudolf Steiner and all the kingdoms and and everything that he had to teach us. And I saw it firsthand. I experienced it firsthand. Again, this is nothing new. I experience it all the time and get messages each and every day throughout the day. But to actually see into that dimension and move in and out of it in, in real time um, and still stand up for myself was a huge lesson for me. And it's a lesson that I'm bringing with me forward now for whatever time I have left on this planet. Um, I just want to let you know that, that our fourth conference on consciousness and contact uh, is July 22nd through the 26th. It will be the last conference uh, that we do of this kind. We are opening a residency program for artists and writers. And what we do during the conference will be integrated into our program at the residency um, so that people can benefit the most as opposed to just a, you know, a four-day event. Uh, the people will be in residence for a month and really get a great deal um, out of being there. So. We have some spots left. We're about two-thirds full, and now that I'm back home, I'm focusing on um, the conference. We have an extraordinary range of speakers, including Whitley and Barbara Lamb, and um, John Lamb Lash is joining us from Spain, um, Giuliano Pozzotti, Alana Freeland, um, it's just an amazing group, Chief Arville Looking Horse and his wife Paula, Chief Henry Redcloud does me um, a lot of uh, 
good to be able to say Chief Henry Red Cloud as I was there when he was made a chief at their Butte. And um, if you're thinking of coming, I suspect that this will be the most important conference out of all four of them um, based on the knowledge I've been given through this experience and the extraordinary group of speakers who are joining us as well as the events that we have planned. The Pine Ridge Reservation is opening up and we will, uh, unless there's some unforeseen event, um, be able to go on to Pine Ridge and, and do a number of things there. So <clears throat> God bless you all. You are blessed. You are loved. You are supported. Um, I just want you to know that we are all in this together. We are all connected. And we are all working towards a common goal and theme of breaking the bonds that hold us back. Um, we are members of the divine community. And it's not just about ET disclosure, it's about all of the kingdoms. They're all here helping us. They're all here supporting us. They're all our friends. And I knew going into surgery that I would have a hard time. I knew that I would be attacked just as I was when I was taken off YouTube and all the other many attacks since I started doing these conferences and speaking out about my experiences and sharing what I know about consciousness. But nothing will stop that process. Um, the sharing of knowledge, experience, and energy is the most important gift that we can give each other right now. And there's no coincidence that we're here. There's no coincidence um, that we are being called to stand firm within ourselves and within our communities. God bless. I'm sending you all lots of love, and um, I hope to hear from you either on the podcast or, um, or in South Dakota. Take care. <laughs>